why there's candy on stage during Vacation Bible School in the message. We have a Hawkeye Award, and Mr. Joe is usually the hawk, so I didn't know if it worked today if I'd have said the one that's sitting up the straightest, paying the closest attention, but I feel like adults get a little bitter if they don't win, and so I didn't want to create controversy and division in the church, so we'll just save that for VBS, but just so you wonder why there's the candy up there. I noticed that they set the clock at 5 to 12 to put pressure on me to finish quickly, but I just don't want you to think that that's the actual time. Uh, We're into Titus and coming to the close of a book that's about a healthy church. What does a healthy church need to look like? How does it need to act? How does it respond? And I don't want us to lose sight of that as as Paul is now drawing uh, to a close on, on his letter to Titus. And this one's about engaging our culture, uh, diving in. And, and one of the things to remember as we look at being a healthy church, and we see this actually from many commentators talk about it, Titus has an evangelistic uh, feel to it because a healthy church is reaching out. It is engaging their world. It is manifesting Christ's glory. And the way we do that is by sharing his truth to share the gospel. And so we're going to be looking very specifically about engaging our culture as we dive in uh, through chapter 3. And then as we close out next week, we will be seeing how he wraps up some of the details, some of the false teachers, how to deal with some of the things he's talked about uh, through the whole book. But I remember uh, distinctly, and and it's probably because I've been doing a lot of digging at my house the last month or so, but I remember how I, I used to think about manual digging when I was in my 20s. And I want to be honest, I never loved it. I don't think anyone does. But I remember when I was in my 20s, when I was done the task, it was over. It was finished. It was, uh, by the next morning, it was a distant memory. An unpleasant one, but it was, it was over. My body, I put, bounced back like a rubber ball. Um, that's no longer the case today. I, I still dislike digging manually. Again, if you like digging Boy, do I have some fun for you at my house. I just want to throw that out there. Um, But I still dislike it. But now I have the added pleasure of not sleeping well uh, after I dig during the day. Because apparently when you lay down at night and you've dug all day, that's when your back starts screaming uh, at you. Uh, The pain seems to increase with darkness. And then I have the joy of morning back pain. Have you ever dug all day and then you wake up? And I'm looking out at a lot of people that understand what I'm talking about. I know that. Uh, Some not 20 faces I'm staring at. Uh, The pain the day after digging is now worse than the pain while digging. That's where I've reached. I'm like, wow, digging was bad enough, but now I hurt so bad the next day. And here's the thing. I have to recognize and embrace my new reality. Things are not what they used to be, and they're never going to go back to that. Well, as we are continuing in what it is a healthy church should do and be, uh, as we look at being the healthy church in our world today, it's crucial that we recognize the reality of our world. And I want us to realize it's not the same as it used to be. I think a lot of times we fall back into a mentality. And when we're going to engage our culture, we're going to have to recognize the reality of our nation. And here's the fact. The United States is not a truly Christian nation anymore. John MacArthur notes this, the United States essentially is now a pagan nation. Yes, millions of Americans still attend church regularly, and many more consider themselves to be Christians. Most Americans claim to believe in God, but practical atheism and moral relativism have dominated our society for many decades. Cultural Christianity is dead. Self-expression, moral freedom, materialism, and hedonism, which is the, the pursuit of pleasure, are the prevailing gods. 
That is the reality that we face. That is the reality of our current world. And let's be even more specific. That is the reality of the nation we live in. Let's even get more specific. That is the reality of Culpeper, Virginia. That is what we are staring at. And I want to say that it's important to recognize reality, but that reality in no way changes our calling to engage our culture. Sometimes as we hit what real life looks like, what what the world is like, we start saying, well, that excuses me from doing this and from doing that and from that thing and this thing because the world is this way. I wanted to get all of that. So talking about digging and whining about my back and then going on into how the world is today, I said all of that for us to realize something. We don't have an excuse to not engage our culture. That is not something we're allowed to check out of. It may seem or be more difficult. We may not bounce back the same as we used to. We may not be as secure or even accepted, but we still must engage them with the truth and hope that comes only from the gospel. As Paul is wrapping up his letter to to Titus, and he's telling him this is what a healthy church needs to do, he is zeroing in on the idea that a healthy church is reaching for the lost. It is a bright light in a dark world. A healthy church sees its responsibility to live for Christ in the world and time in which they are placed. I'm sure many people said, oh, I wish it was like it was 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And I'm happy to say that. As long as you don't go past air conditioning, I'm, I'm thrilled with any, anything in the past from then forward. But the fact is we're here now. We're in this place now. This is our world now. Uh, Cody and I, when we were traveling back from India, uh, we went through London. On the way over, we went through Amsterdam, Holland. So it was like blissful. And then we came back through England. Uh, it was terrible. But um, we bumped into a guy waiting in line to eat. And we were talking to him. And he'd, he'd been saved four years ago, visiting his family in England. He lives in Texas. And what was interesting is he was talking about how his family was now. And he was not discouraged, but I would say a little bit down because he'd talked to his, he'd come over to celebrate his grandmother's 90th birthday with his extended family, had had a spiritual conversation with his grandmother and was discouraged because she basically was saying, yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I believe in God. I'm a good person. Everything. And so as we were dialoguing through that, and we were able to send him some of the literature that we're working with through in our community, but it dawned on me that it was engaging with reality. Yes, he has a very hard family. You might have a hard family. He has a very distant family. He lives in Texas, there in England. No one seems to care. No one seems to want to have a conversation, but he doesn't get the check out of engaging. And I I want us to understand something. As we are diving in, God has called us to engage our culture, no matter how hard it may be, because this is the time and place that we're on earth, and we are his ambassadors with a calling to shed his light, to share his glory, to talk about his gospel. And so Paul wrote to Titus to put them in mind, he says, remind them. And this is no casual thing. He says, make sure this is constantly in mind about engaging their world. Now, I want us to displace this letter because oftentimes they think, well, it'd be easier back then than it is now. He wrote to churches on the island of Crete. What was the island of Crete? It was an island filled with paganism. It was filled with perversion, filled with deceit, filled with people who are known to be insubordinate, who, who rebelled against any authority, 
This is a tough island. Actually, this island had people, the Phoenicians came over and actually part of the, when we're in Judges, which will be in a couple weeks, uh, some of the people that Israel had to fight against came through the island of Crete all the way over. There's a connection that goes way back uh, for the nation of Israel and for history. But this, this island was not filled with easy people or a culture that accepted Christ or that even was a culture that was easy to talk to. They, they were difficult people. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. They didn't want to be told what to do. Sounds like the United States, doesn't it? Sounds like us. Don't tell us what to do. Very independent-minded in that sense, that, that we'll do what we want. And there are churches that needed to go there and reach their world with the gospel. And so we must reach into our culture as well. And that's what this whole eight verses about, reaching our world God's way. And that's a critical thing. We reach our world God's way. We engage our culture as God has told us to do, as Christ has laid out. And that requires us to engage respectfully. Verse 1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. As one translator puts it, it's to ruling powers which have due authority, render the submission of an active obedience. We are to remember our duties And by our obedience to authorities, demonstrate that this world is not the kingdom of primary importance. Because as we obey government in the context that that Scripture lays out, we actually share that this is not of the most importance to us. Our ultimate goal is not to get our way necessarily, though I'm going to say that can be a blessing, and it is oftentimes. Instead, our goal and interaction is designed to highlight a holy God by our holy living, and to win the lost to Jesus Christ. So in light of that purpose, being the light of Christ in a dark, lost world, we must engage with the lost world in a way that points to him clearly. And Paul begins with our response to leadership, which let's be honest, as Americans, the first thing we like to complain about are what? Politicians, right? It's politicians, lawyers, and then salespeople. And I always tell people, I've lived in category three for a long time. And that's okay. I'm all right. I like being one of the villains in that sense. But we always love to complain about our government. We always love to talk about that. And and Paul is addressing a group of people. Now, remember who the people in Crete are. They're insubordinate. These are people who, by character, by definition, rebel. They don't listen. And Paul is saying, as the church, he wants them, as they respond to leadership, to respond in a way that honors him, that, that prioritizes him, that brings glory to him. And so he says we have a call to submit and obey. To be subject, it means, is to, su- to submit. And it speaks about our attitude and our stance towards government. And, and I say that in the sense of attitude and stance. It's about your disposition. We are to have a disposition of submission, though that doesn't mean we think everything's fair. I am positive that in this room, everyone has an opinion about taxes that would be more fair than what takes place today. I think it's more common sense, like all of you. It doesn't mean I think every law and every rule they make is fair, but I have a disposition of submission. I have an attitude that says I am seeking for opportunity to obey. We're striving to react when they ask us to do something, and that's all within the confines of Scripture and reason. Uh, scripture doesn't ask us to act ridiculous. 
Now, there's been people that have pushed that in the recent years. Well, government said it, so you have to do it. There's not ridiculousness that God asks us of, but he's asking for base attitude that says, hey, I want to obey. I'm seeking for an opportunity through my obedience to emphasize Christ. And so as we step into that, we show respect and honor for the role given to the leaders. This in no way, again, negates thinking nor using the provided course of law to shape and change law. A submission is not whatever they want disposition. It is, though, a decision to respect the role and authority delegated to government. We decide. That's why I say it's an attitude. It's a decision that I am going to be a person who shows respect. That's followed by to obey, which is addressing our follow-through. These are our actions. You are to pay your taxes. You are to obey the reasonable rule. You are to follow through on our godly disposition. I'm grateful for organizations out there with a Christian background that are engaging with our government in a way that honors God's word, but still is at the forefront. It's not going into neutral, which we're about to see, but we are to submit, and that's the mindset. We are to follow through. We are to do what is right, and as we engage our culture, our reputation is one of respectfulness and honoring of the authority bestowed upon leadership, even though the leadership may not be what we desire or what seems best. We are to submit and obey, yet even further, we are to seek, to be ready to every good work. And this is the interesting dichotomy sometimes that happens. It's either we're rebellious or we're disengaged. Well, I'm just going to submit and obey. Nothing I can do about it. Nothing I can do here. And, And that's not what Paul's looking for. He's looking for a respectful disposition, a decision to do what's right, For the purpose of honoring Christ, because look, we let them know that we're not trying to overthrow them. I was in China, ooh, it's been a long time now, Uh, bumped into a a factory uh, manager. Uh, He had been educated, was a citizen of Canada, actually, but was native to China, and and came out, my brother and I were talking, and he recognized that we were believers, started talking with me, and was sharing something that had taken place. This is in a different era. This is not the current president. Uh, where they had, Christians had passed out things to doctors and government officials realized that Christians weren't looking to overthrow the government, but instead were praying for the government, were, were striving and working, and were trying to be a help through, it was the bird flu at the time. And I thought that was a great testimony to the authorities in China at the time that, hey, as Christians, this world is not our home but we are engaged in it. And that's when we dive into this idea of seek to be ready to every good work. As we submit to and obey authority, we are also prompted to seek opportunity to serve our community and even minister through the avenue of that leadership. I've shared with you many times when when Cody and I went to India and and Dustin had connected us to uh, an organization, Alliance Defending Freedom, that have lawyers that are engaged in good work there. And we were able to introduce them to the pastors because they strive to get involved in government and in law, not only in India, but here, to try to help. It's a good example of what it means to to be ready to every good work. Because we are to sincerely and eagerly seek to serve others, no matter the negative bent against us, to show that we are consistent, and one commentator said, aggressive in our desire to do good. To be ready is being truly prepared That means you've thought through and committed to working good for and through 
our government or our leadership. I'm going to list a few things that I think will be helpful. So this is a practical kind of outflow of seeking to do every good work and how you would do that in the realm of leadership. Because this phrase ties to leadership and then carries us into general society. So from a, from a leadership standpoint, there's goodness and honor in being involved in county affairs and being vested in the community. I will joke with some of you at times, say, hey, you should run for board of supervisor. You should run to be mayor. You should run to be governor. And I say sometimes in jest what really is serious. It's good and honorable for you to be involved in your community and trying to be an influence and trying to make change at that level. There is goodness and honor in serving one's military, seeking to do good through that avenue. There is honor in that. There's biblical honor in that. That is seeking to do good work in every way. That is involvement in what's going on. I know a lot of us have connections to those that have been in the military or are in the military, but understand that, that Titus, the, the letter to Titus is actually telling us that there is biblical good that is done in that. There's honor in honoring your Lord and Savior by diving into that. There is goodness and honor, though I'll be honest, not often seen from the world, in seeking public office for the purpose of doing good. We are not called to disengage from our culture. We are called to have the right priority. Never lose sight of what good you're trying to accomplish. You are there to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. You are there to speak truth into the world around you. And Paul is letting us know that being involved in our politics and in our local government and in our school boards and being involved in these things can have a kingdom purpose and we should seek those for a kingdom purpose. This readiness is part of the respectful engagement we have with our culture, a respect that manifests in a disposition and action of obedience, desiring to respect and honor what has been set in place, though again, not mindless or Bibleless capitulation to the capricious demands of that government. We've seen that in the last couple of years. We've seen ridiculousness. And the Bible never calls us to do what is ridiculous in light of this, but there's respect and honor. There is, a, there is a right way to do this, a way that honors Jesus Christ. However, we seek to show that this world is not our home by that respect for what has been set in place to govern this world, again, as it remains in the confines of Scripture. And that respect seeks opportunity in various components for the good of the community and good involvement in it. Now, as I mentioned, that call to be ready to every good work. Paul likes to start with leadership. Again, understand on the island of Crete, very rebellious, very insubordinate, very pushed back against any type of authority. So he's dealing with this idea that that's a bad testimony for Christ, which I think ties well into our culture. And now he's shifting to society as a whole. How do we engage our culture as a whole? And the call to be ready to every good work is expanded on, is, is a transitional phrase that connects us also to general society. It speaks now to biblical involvement with a biblical objective in our society as a whole, an involvement that must be done graciously. Verse 2 says this, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Paul moves from looking at specific engagement with our government or civil leadership to society as a whole, all people. And he's going to talk about that. We're going to show meekness unto all men. 
And he's very emphatic about that. The Greek he uses there is, is emphasizing everyone. And in this context, Paul is talking mainly about the lost. He's talking about the world around us. He's not necessarily even talking about the church, so he's not excluding it. He's wanting our emphasis to go out. And notice that there's two alls, all meekness, all men. And so don't lose sight of that. Paul is not cutting us any slack. He's not letting us off the hook in any way. Uh, we're zeroed in on the non-Christians and the segue of being ready for every good work. He now moves to our response to this world and those who inhabit it in general. And first, we are not to do some things. We're not to malign, which is to speak evil of them. This means we're not to slander, curse, or treat with contempt. Though we condemn the sin of society and even society's twisted way of communicating, we are not to revert to evil speech. We're not cursing them. We're not calling them names. Uh, this is hard, isn't it? Because when you've been attacked, you start thinking, well, they're using swords. I'm using swords. They're using this. I'll use that. And Paul right away is saying, no, you don't. That's not how you're going to engage your world. We're also not to be known as contentious be no brawlers. And that, that actually paints a picture, right? To get into a brawl is to get into a fight, right? And, and it doesn't have the idea of a prize fight, does it? It's not with rings and it doesn't have a referee. It's just a wild fight that everyone jumps into. And Christians aren't supposed to be that way. You're not looking to be obnoxious. I think I've said that multiple times. Our faith will offend the world. It always will. But let your faith offend the world. Don't let you be offensive. Let it be who you believe in. And that's what he's talking about here. Don't be a contentious in that way. You're not to be in everyone's face style of confrontation. Instead, we are called to be gentle. And that's actually a, a very involved word. No matter how it's translated, it doesn't quite capture what they're saying in Greek. Uh, the idea of, of some is to be reasonable uh, one commentator talked it about sweet reasonableness, and as I was reading through it, multiple people quoted this sweet reasonableness, but the reality is when I say sweet reasonableness, it means the same to you as gentle. It's a hard word in Greek to wrap our mind around. It, it is a very full word. Uh, sometimes there's words in another language that, that just have more meaning than we can quite capture. There's a couple things, though, that come out. It, it tells us that we're fair and patient with people. We show Christ to them, and it's, it's, we, we always have that we're showing Christ's love to them, and we're willing to oftentimes share the, the higher arching theology, but rarely do we show gentleness, being fair and patient with people. Uh, we are patient with life circumstances. This is where the depth of the word, and it's in one way, kind of comes out. Uh, one commentator notes this, uh, we're able to handle injustice. Not that we condone it, and not that we're looking outside, and it's handling injustice to us. It's actually displaying an attitude of satisfaction, even when less than is due us, is given to us. And that really hit home. It's this idea that, that we have something in us, which we do, that allows us to handle the tricks and mean plays of this world. Because if we all push the pause button, there are breaks in this life that some people seem to get and some people don't. There's also times, though, when you know something's due you. When you know this isn't right, 
This, is, this isn't right what's happening. And see, the believer who's living out a healthy life that's going to reach their community can deal with that. What do we do when we can't deal with that? It ties to our heart and life, right? This injustice that has occurred to us, it doesn't have to be where someone did some crime, but you can feel or know that what should have unfolded doesn't unfold to you. How do we deal with that as a believer? And, and it's saying here, if you're gentle, the sweet reasonableness is, is this idea that we can handle it, not just that we can tamp down the bitterness and hopefully it stays in the can and doesn't blow out, but instead actually be able to live a life of biblical satisfaction, even though something that was due us doesn't come our way. It doesn't condone the behavior. It doesn't excuse the one or people or circumstance that caused it, but it is a change and it sets up the next one. And I put in my notes, this is an ability enabled by Christ alone. You can't do this if this world is your home. It won't work. And the outcome of this is that often misinterpreted word, meekness. And different translations say consideration or perfect courtesy. And it's defined as this, it's an inrock grace of the soul and the exercise of it are first and chiefly towards God. And this is a fascinating thing as we work from gentleness, which is this interaction with the world around us in a fair and patient way and dealing with life circumstances in that same patient, fair way where injustice doesn't throw us off. We're able to be satisfied even though things didn't turn out as they should have turned out turns into this idea of meekness, which oftentimes we see as an interaction between us and other people. That's what gentleness is. That fruit of meekness is now how we respond to God in this. So this disposition toward God accepts his dealings with us as good, no matter how it turns out, without disputing or resisting. And I want you to see from gentleness, this this idea that you can have satisfaction even when things aren't fair to you. And now meekness is your attitude towards God. And it's this disposition that says God does all things for what? Good to those that love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And it's believing that. It is saying to God, though I may not get it, and that's the reality, we are not promised that we'll get it. We're not promised that we'll know why. We won't we aren't promised that it's going to all make sense to our mind what's unfolded. We are promised that our God works it for good. And this meekness, this disposition, I want you to see the depth of what Paul's driving to is seeing God's interaction with this world and he is involved in this world and seeing it as good. We're not disputing or resisting God or arguing with him about his goodness. And that plays out in society. It's not passivism. It's not that you're a rug that everyone walks on. It means that you have a heavenly perspective or you have a a, a view of God that cannot be tripped up. It's being, and I say, not self-centered. Your perspective is heavenly. It's not a self-centered one. And what happens is there's a lack of self-assertiveness and self-interest which allows us then to see circumstances from the perspective of God's kingdom. What does God work for good? We we get too individual about that. Well, God's going to work it to good, so this loss is going to be increased for me. I lost $100, but God's going to give me $1,000. 
That's a misapplication of that. That's very temporal and very self-centered. As you lose that self-interest or the self-assertiveness, then you start seeing what God has done as being good for his kingdom, and it's a kingdom perspective that you have. That changes how you respond to life here on earth. This disposition is applied to all people and all circumstances. As Christ followers, we show in our interaction responses that our priority is him and his glory, and we demonstrate the power of God to transform sinners and make them like himself. We show to the world what it means to be a Christian. This is possible when we think accurately on the reality of sin and its effect, on the fact that we were once slaves to this world system, See, engaging our culture biblically requires us also to think reflectively. Verse 3, for we ourselves also, and that's a link back to, as Paul's talking about the world they're in and the Christians and saying, whew, this is a, this is a rough group of people. And he says, that's what we were. That's who we were. We're sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We have to remember that without Christ, we had and would still have the same perspective as the world, the same issues as the world. Because when we were slaves to sin, we were foolish. What does that mean? We lacked understanding of spiritual things. We were unwise and unwilling to hear, which meant we were what? Disobedient. We acted against God's law and his way. The result was we were deceived. We were led astray. We lived according to the lie of Satan, right? Original sin, he lied to them about what was taking place. Did he really say that? Shouldn't you have this? We, we bought into it when we were without Christ, which results in us being enslaved. You served sin instead of God, which is the lie the world says. Oh, you Christians, you're stuck serving God. Oh, you world, you're stuck serving Satan because that's what you're ultimately doing. The sin that's there is service to another kingdom. That's one of the first things we're talking about with the kids on Monday, that there are two kingdoms, that you're serving in one or the other, that there's no neutral ground. And the fact is you're enslaved. We serve sin instead of God, which results in a deep-seated discontentment. We're filled with malice, which is basically a word for general evil, and it speaks to being vicious, self-serving character. That's what it is. It's, it's, and, uh, when I say it's an ugly word, it's just an ugly... There's nothing good, nothing connected. It's just, just wicked. That's who you are. And then more specifically, you lived in envy. You're never satisfied, never happy for others, always craving more. What is the natural result of that? You're going to be hateful. You'll start out by despising anyone or anything that gets in your way. And then he digresses. we digress from there to hating everyone which is a very lonely sin, right? When you hate everyone, you don't want to be around anybody. And, and the fact is, as you look at who we were without Christ, and we were people that did the same thing as the world does, the fact is, that is what we all are without Christ. I'm not saying to the worst degree that's there, but that's what you are. And as we remember that, it drives us to a Christ-like compassion and response. Because trust me, I get as furious as everyone else does when the world does when it lies, when it, when it twists the words of Christ, when it twists truth, it's, it's so frustrating. But we have to remember we would have been the same twisters if we didn't have Christ. And then what is the Christ-like compassion and response? 
And remember this, he came while we were yet sinners to redeem us. So as we think about this idea of how we're interacting with our world, how we engage our culture, Paul's now driving us to the reality that we're to interact with the lost. And I use the word gratefully because you're seeing how in the world you're different. Verses four through seven says here, but after listing all the things we were without Christ, but after that, the kindness and love of God, our savior toward man appeared. He talked about that, remember, in the last closing chapter, we talked about God's grace and the implication of that and how grace had appeared and glory was coming and it's all embodied in Jesus Christ. And now he just reminds us again, hey, the kindness and love of God appeared. It came to earth, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And that's a critical phrase there. Not because of you. And it says, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I put in, in, in the background, it'll kind of lead into it, but God, our Savior. We were this, but God. We are lost, condemned forever in our own sin, the choices we've made, but God, our Savior. Paul, again, reminds us of the magnitude of God's grace and mercy and how that truth must affect how we interact with the world around us. This is an amazing three verses, four, five, six, four verses on salvation and what takes place and what Christ did. It is tucked in the context of engaging our culture. It is a point that Paul is trying to make that we are to engage our culture with our mind fixed, which we talked about last week, right? We live our life fixed on the gospel. Now Paul's saying, and as you engage this world, as you dive into it, you engage gratefully. And that's just a word that, that helps me hang a hook on it. But you engage it with the gospel mindset of what Christ has done. Because we interact with the world knowing who we were and that we could not change ourselves, but that he came and changed us. Not because we're so good, but because he's so good. And so it shapes not only our individual behavior, but forms the focus of our evangelism. We know that hope for this world is only found in Christ's redemptive work. We're not to forget that. Because we oftentimes get locked into, well, if we just get the right president in office, if we just get the right senator, congressman, school board, and I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for that. We talked about that, right? When it came to leadership, seek good, be involved, take care. So Paul's not nixing that. But as he drives to this, there's no hope for this world in any human being at all. And he drives to where hope is found. And it's a work built on God's righteousness, we bring no righteousness, and the idea is rightness, right? That word is one of those words that we kind of throw into the theology category, righteousness, and it just floats in the clouds. It's being right, rightness to the table. We don't bring any right to the table. We don't bring any good, any purity, any holiness, but he brings all of his on our behalf. He saves us because he is a redeeming, merciful God. That redemption is active on his part. God is not distant from us. He is involved. He brings about, and that's the next one, regeneration. What does it say? He cleanses us of our sin. All of the filth that was us before Christ, verse 3, 
everything we were, we also were, and we just went through a whole list that carries us to the absolute most hateful being on earth. And I know at different degrees of that, but that's what we walk through. Enslaved to sin, ultimately just hating anything except us. A little glimpse of the isolation that takes place in hell. Self-service and the ugliness that can come with that. All of the filth that was us before Christ has been made clean. We are washed as white as snow. And he brings about our complete renewal. Our new life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He renews us to the work of the Holy Spirit who is poured out abundantly. Uh, MacArthur notes this. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life, sustains our spiritual life, empowers our spiritual life, and guarantees that our spiritual life will become eternal life because he is the seal or guarantee of eternal life. And you can wander all the way in Ephesians and you'll see all this laid out. We are saved because of his righteousness, his mercy, his grace. His movement. And then he shares the Holy Spirit, talks about the Holy Spirit coming, who's going to work in our lives, going to fill our life, is going to change everything about it, and is going to be accomplishing this as the guarantee or the seal that's there. We are, in that context of engaging our culture, as he gives this picture, we remain forever grateful to our Lord and Savior for his amazing redemptive work on our behalf because we never could have deserved it. And that gratitude. That remembering of what Christ has done forms a foundation of how we see the world that is without him. Because this is a theologically rich four verses, but you miss Paul's point when you don't apply it to how you engage your culture. It is supposed to shape how you interact with the world. Are we seeing the lost in light of what Christ has done for us. I find myself offended by the loss. I am, how dare they say that about Christians? How dare they do that? How dare they pass that law? And look, we should be bothered by the sin that's there, but suddenly I'm not seeing them in light of what Christ has done for me. Do we have a deep desire that the working we see in our lives will be in their lives? Is that our passion? See, the fact is the church must have Christ's passion for the loss. We must be engaging our culture, and this is verse 8, and this is the driving punch to what he's been saying purposefully. This is a faithful saying, he says, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Just so you're wondering, how often does Paul want them to think about this? How often does he want Titus to preach on this? All the time. All the time, I want you to think about what Christ has done as you interact with the world. All the time, I want you to remember who you were without Christ, that you brought nothing to do. All the time, I want you to realize how you are to answer the world, and it doesn't look anything like the world would answer. All the time, I want you to realize that you set an example by your obedience to government, even when that government is, is awful in that sense. He says that they which have believed in God might be careful— to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. See, we're just be focused on good works, and right away, being humans, we're thinking, ah, now I earned something. Now I do something. And we make everything temporal. See, the good works are works that can bring eternal benefit to the lost, works that are aligned with our Savior's priority for the lost. 
Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, as Paul is closing out his letter to Titus, he wants to make sure that the churches on Crete are living purposefully, that they are engaging their culture with the mindset of their Savior. That's what he's been driving us to. You need to think about the loss like Christ thinks about the loss, understanding that we engage our world God's way, respectfully, graciously, reflectively, gratefully, and ultimately purposefully. I want to close because I think this quote summarizes it perfectly. It's a quote from John MacArthur, and he said this, the purpose of a priest is to bring God to people and people to God. As we walk through Leviticus, that's one of the truths that came out about the priesthood. And now there's the priesthood of the believer. So let me say that so you see that we're talking about you. The purpose of a priest is to bring God to people and people to God. If we do not lead the lost to salvation, nothing else we do for them, no matter how beneficial at the time, is of any eternal consequence. Let me just rewind. You're supposed to be careful to maintain good works, and there's nothing that we do for them that doesn't lead to salvation that ultimately or eternally brings any good to them at all. There is one good in that sense. So I ask this question as we close, are we engaged in what is of eternal value? Are we engaged in what is of eternal value? And, and, and kind of the, the premise of a healthy church and what Paul's been driving to, we must if we are to be his healthy church. We can be our own healthy church with all the things we might think are the most important, but to be his healthy church we must be engaged in what is of eternal value. Let's close in prayer. Hey, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and dive into your word in, in a very convicting passage. As we walk into what we're about to engage in, uh, as you've given us the opportunity with so many kids that are coming, uh, as a church, 80 people involved in, in reaching out into our communities, help us to have a kingdom, kingdom purpose and focus, that we do not lose sight of what is of eternal value. What is truly a good work is a work that bears eternal fruit. Help us as a church uh, to be fixed on that, to have that be our passion. Help us as a church or as individuals to have that be our passion. As we interact with our world, help us to never lose sight of the fact that they need Jesus Christ. That nothing else that we talk about or do will ultimately have any benefit for them if we don't constantly keep forefront your truth and your gospel. Help us to remember the verses 4 through 7, understanding that as we look at the, at the world around us and we condone none of their behavior, we're not happy about any of their sin and neither are you, but help us never to lose heart for them, to never lose hope, but instead to fervently seek to do eternal work, to do good work, to be careful for that, and to be your servants here on earth, understanding that we're here to be your ambassadors. We're here with a kingdom purpose. In your precious and holy name, amen.